Hello, everyone. Welcome to a brand new episode of The Other Fifty. As with all the other shows, we invite amazing women to come to our show and talk about what they're doing, what's inspiring them, what's the industry trends, what's going on, and basically everything and anything under the sun except, well, gender. So today we have the opportunity to have Stephanie Foster to join us on the show. Stephanie is a long, long time veteran of the payments industry, having worked 19 years in Western Union, and most recently the last two years at Fiserv, or 17 years, sorry. Um, and you have a long history, and not just in, in payments per se, you're also doing a lot of different things. And most recently, you were named one of the Electronic Transaction Associations, ETAs, 40 Under 40. So can you tell us about some of the things that you are doing right now at Fiserv? Hi, uh, Theo. Thank you so much for um, having me on the podcast today. I'm really excited about the opportunity to share a little bit more about my thoughts on what's happening in fintech. So thank you so much for the opportunity again. Um, so yeah, I like to think of myself as one of the few people who like literally grew up in payments. I went from high school and started my internship at Western Union before I even took my first college course. So I've spent the lion's share of my career uh, working at Western Union, growing our international remittance business uh, between the developed countries and the Caribbean. And fast forward to 2018, um, I'm at Fiserv now. I'm more in the FI and treasury side of payments, which is very exciting. It's new for me. I've been learning quite a bit. Um, But currently, I lead go-to-market and operational readiness for new products in our financial and risk management solutions division. So part of what I do is identify the right market segments, building the value proposition uh, for our clients, looking at the competition and developing all the sales enablement tools to basically commercialize new product offerings in our division. So um, I can give you an example that right now I'm working with um, our FI partners to look at opportunities on how to increase engagement with our commercial customers. And I'm sure, you know, commercial customers, you know, hold multiple banking relationships and they're securing their receivables product from a number of banks, right? They'll have one bank for lockbox, one bank for ACH, one bank for their corporate banking. So part of what we do is helping these banks who are currently missing out on optimizing their commercial deposits and they're losing share of wallet. So we consult and understand their current treasury state and what the new ideal state would look like which is um, loads of fun in understanding, you know, what's happening in the treasury landscape today. You know, it's, it's funny, you, you bring me back a little bit to my uh, sort of retail and business banking days when I was at Mechanics Bank, because we had mm-hmm. um, a lot of lockbox clients uh, on the treasury side and had a lot of um, companies that were taking in, I guess, mass amount of payments for rent and, and things like that. They owned a lot of properties. And um, people, when they think about payments, they don't think about, you know, sort of the, the broader landscape a lot. And so right. the fact that you've sort of gone and been involved in all of these different types of payments uh, is, is great uh, to kind of hear about your background that way. Uh, because, you know, commercial business payments are so much different than what we're seeing on the consumer side. But that's really all that we hear in the news is what's happening mm-hmm. in the U.S. versus China and other markets. Um, but I'm going to have you dive into that a little bit. I mean, what's going on in China with Alipay and Tencent, those numbers that we see are just so 
significant in terms of volume. Last year on Singles Day on November 11th, over 60% of those payments were done via biometrics or from consumers taking a selfie of themselves. How come, regardless of which sort of slice of payments we're talking about, why does it feel that we're so far behind in the U.S. compared, or, or is it not really that far behind? Yeah, you know, I, if you follow me on Twitter, you know that my handle is Payment Geeks. Payment Geek. Um, I'm really fascinated with what's happening in, in China today, and um, you know, I may be on the like the Gen X millennial side of things, but yeah, I still remember growing up and paying with checks, right, sending a check in for my bill or paying in cash at the grocery store or using what we called back in the day your bank card. Um, no, but today I'm a huge fan of online bill pay. I just want to set it and forget it. Like, don't even go back and, and log on anymore. Um, and I'm big on all the P2P innovation. So Zelle, Venmo, Cash App, Facebook Pay. Um, every once in a while, somebody will ask me to pay with them, with a, you know, to pay them with a check. And the first thing I say is I work in FinTech. I refuse to write a check. Like it's it's got to be something that I can transfer to you from my phone, or you're not getting paid. Basically, is my attitude. So everybody in my family knows this, um, and I think that also, you know, the the Ubers and the Lyfts of the world, they've all introduced this frictionless um, payments transportation experience. And honestly, I know a lot of us in the industry just can't go back to physically pulling out a credit card and using it. Um, so I really don't think that um, biometrics and facial recognition for payments is far behind for the U.S. I mean, I know that traditionally um, we have not been on the forefront of banking and payments innovation, and our adoption tends to be a little bit slower than China or even Europe and Canada at some point. Um, but, you know, we're all using the iPhone X now, right? And we have facial recognition to access mm -hmm. our bank account. Um, so it would just be one step up for, you know, as far as the user experience on the U.S. side of things uh, to start experiencing, you know, taking a selfie and paying for my sandwich at Subway. Um, I don't think it's far behind. I think it's a lot closer than we think. Um, however, actual adoption could be a little bit slow. That's my I mean perspective. Do you think that, you know, people using um, Zelle and using Venmo and other ways to make payments um, is, is really, you know, completely mainstream now? Because the, the thing that was interesting, I was reading recently about Zelle and, you know, they were talking about the, the type of volume um, are really driven by larger payments than something in Venmo. Venmo is kind mm -hmm. of seen as paying your friends and Zelle, I think in many cases, people are paying the rent. Um, and I remember way back in the day, Pop Money, when we launched that almost a decade ago, that yeah. the majority of those um, payments were things like rent. And it was like $1,100 an average payment when we first launched. And it was like, wow, you know, this is not a payment application. It's just a way to move money quicker than a check. Um, mm -hmm. I mean, what, else do you, what else do you kind of see as driving um, people's adoption into digital payments? I think it's convenience. Convenience and that frictionless user experience. You know, Apple Pay is not a big one, and I'm a huge fan of Apple Pay. Um, you know, for example, my father, so I live in Atlanta. My father lives in New York. He had surgery a few weeks ago. I was in between trips. I could not physically be there with him. So I'm at the airport, you know, in line, going through security. I was able to log on to my cell phone, 
go on edibles.com, edibleerrangements.com, and through Apple Pay, ordered an arrangement for my father, like shipped the next day. I mean, it was just, again, seamless, frictionless, one click from my phone while I'm traveling. And I think that today's consumer is just so much more sophisticated where we're expecting this experience everywhere we go across all channels. So I think it's it's the sophistication of the U.S. consumer, especially those of us in the ages, you know, between 25 and 40 um, is where that growth is going to be coming from, for sure. I was I was going to say this is probably not the right time to be telling you that I've been paying my nanny with checks for the last I don't know how many years. Um, but it, it's like short of, you know, going to the ATM to get cash. I didn't really have an easy way. That being said, yeah. though, I am a big fan of Apple Pay. Um, I do look for it. Um, and it seems to be a little bit more easier to find Apple Pay symbols here than, mm-hmm. let's say, mm-hmm. overseas. We were just recently in, uh, in Paris and Bordeaux. And good God, I don't recall using so much cash until I was there. It's like, okay, what is going on? Similarly in, in Tokyo. I also used a lot of cash. So um, I'm hopeful for what could happen, but, um, you know, keeping fingers crossed. Um, yeah, I hear you. I was I was at a conference in New Orleans, what, about like three to four weeks ago, and I'd never been. It was my first time in the city. I was super excited. Um, really wanted to stop at the, oh my gosh, what's it called? Café du Monde mm-hmm. to get a beignet, because that's what you do when you're in New Orleans, right? Oh, I love that place. Yes. Okay. They only accepted cash. Yes. So needless to say, I walked away without my vignette because I no. had no cash on me. <laughs> and the coffee there's really good too. That's a shame. See, I missed out on everything because I had no cash. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. Well, next time, if we do happen to be there together, I'll treat you to one. That'd be super awesome. <laughs> <laughs> so speaking of, I think we digressed a little bit. Um, let's go back to, you know, talking about some of the trends, right? So sure, payments is a big, is a big, big topic um, with this year. 2019 has been a, actually a busy, busy year for everything and anything in fintech. There is crazy major deals that's been going on, big mega deals. Um, there are numerous unicorns that were born. Uh, funding seems to be limitless. In, in your point of view, what drove that frenzy of activities? And do you have any predictions for us and what we might see in 2020? Yeah, I mean, I'd say that if, if I knew what drove this, I feel like I'd be rich right now and probably not even talking to you. I'd be like somewhere on the shores of France chilling on a Friday. Ooh, but that's you know, good. if we were to recap <laughs> if we were to recap a little bit, so it started with, you know, Pfizer and First Data, and then it was FIS World Pay, and then it was Global Payments and Thesis. Quite the year. Um, I think each one more surprising than the previous. I don't know that any of us really saw this coming. Um, and, you know, let's face it, there, there are a lot of fintech players out there. All these organizations are looking for efficiencies. They want to innovate for their clients. They want to differentiate themselves in this very crowded marketplace. Um, they have to stay relevant. 
and they need to continue to bring value to their shareholders. And the quickest way to do all these things is acquisitions, right? If you can't beat them, you buy them, basically. Um, so I think that 2020 is going to be interesting as we see all these mergers and acquisitions play out. Nobody really knows, you know, which brand will prevail, which solutions will survive, which leadership team is going to stay, which one is going to go. Um, on the technology front, I do see mobile payments to continue to grow, uptake on voice, that's a new one, which I think is going to be a lot slower than, than we've predicted. Um, electronic transactions, again, on the B2B space are going to continue to rise. You know, for example, we know that this year ACH volumes were up 8% in the first eight months of the year. Same day ACH transaction is growing too. Um, Say other, I think other big trends for next year is cybersecurity risk. I think still remains a concern for everybody in this space. Um, if you think about the most recent security breach with Equifax, 147 million consumers were impacted. There were fined up to like 500 million dollars. Cap One recently had you know 100 million customer personal data compromised. So I think these are where we'll continue to see trends and in those two different areas. Um, and also, like I said before, user experience. Going back to that seamless, frictionless payment experience that we have all come accustomed to, um, consumers will continue to expect that in, in 2020. And I'll raise my hand and say I'm the first one. <laughs> We would like to give a mention to our creative partner, Tremendousness. Tremendousness is a creative agency that uses visual thinking, information design, and storytelling to help organizations explore innovations, products, and processes. Learn more at www.tremendo.us. Yeah, it's interesting that you said, you know, which which management teams are going to survive some of these sort of mega deals. And it, it seems like mm -hmm. whenever we have sort of a large company sort of acquiring or merging with another, that a lot of the spinoff from that is that some of those executives go on to start other companies of interest. Um, yeah. You know, it's it's there's so much going on in terms of like banking and fintech sort of mashups. And I do think that the economy will, will likely be a big sort of determinant of what's going to happen next year and beyond. I mean, if we hit a recession, there's going to be an awful lot of credit startups and payment startups that are going to be challenged. Um, mm -hmm. but then, you know, you have the stripes of the world and others that I think are going to continue to grow regardless because of their momentum. Um, Absolutely. What, one of the mashups that we wanted to talk about with you today was um, between Apple and Marcus uh, in terms of launching an, a physical card, which is interesting. Um, there's a lot of, you know, sort of people on both sides of the fence, which talk about Apple card and what their goals are versus what Marcus and Goldman Sachs goals are. Um, cash rebate on the card, anywhere from one to 3% um, consumers are still using credit cards. Um, what, do, what do you think about Apple Card and, you know, what Goldman Sachs are doing? Well, first of all, Apple refuses to share the actual number of Apple Card users, right? So that tells me everything I need to know, um, you know, which is why they're exploring all these cash rebates and other acquisition tactics. I mean, that's what you do. I get it. Um, if I think about people that I know, it, it's mostly 
other payment geeks like us who have signed up for this Apple card, as far as I know. And we all did it in the name of research, right? We want to go through the experience. And again, like I said before, consumers are just becoming more and more sophisticated. Apple card comes with really cool analytics that people like me want to see. Um, the application process has been absolutely seamless, right? The issuance process has been great. Going back to customer experience, that's what we want. But if we think a little bit more about the history of payments in the U.S., right? We started off writing checks, going to the ATM machine. But what has happened to retail branch banking? Like, when was the last time you walked into a bank branch, right? Um, like, the last time I did, I went into Chase with my mom. She was visiting. There was one person actually working there. It was all kiosk inside the bank. So, yes, it's going to take a little bit longer to change the habit um, of using a physical card versus an Apple Pay or any other virtual payment card in this, on the consumer side. Um, but, you know, we, we've evolved from swipe to EMV chips to contactless to Apple Pay. Um, and a lot of fanatics like me just can't go back. So I think it's going to happen. It's a matter of when or how quickly. Um, you know, I was reading actually something on Payments Journal just a couple of days ago stating that Apple Pay now has 30 million users, which is 47% of mobile payments today, right, compared to Starbucks that has 25 million customers on their mobile app. You know, an awful lot of hype around that article, right? And like you said, though, they haven't, uh, you know, talked about what their volume is. They haven't talked about right. anything other than sort of um, one-time usage, you know, because I could say, yeah, Apple Pay has 35 million users or whatever it might be, but that doesn't mean that they use it every day. It doesn't mean they use it every week. You know, I, I don't use Apple Pay um, as much as I probably could because I don't see it. You know, I, I don't see it other than places like Whole Foods, which... Now, you know, again, everyone wants you to use their application to make payments. Brian, you need to move east. I can literally (laughs) go without using anything else except Apple Pay for an entire week. And Mm -hmm. one would think in Silicon Valley that you could actually use Apple Pay everywhere. But but where I was going with this um, is the the entry point of Apple Pay in Goldman card um, issuance was really interesting the way that they did it. And I, I want to know, Stephanie, what do, you, what do you think about the digital issuance of that card and the sign-up process of that card? And why is that? I mean, we looked at that at something there back in 2015 and 2016 to like issue card digitally immediately and have you add it to your wallet and have you add it as your default card for so many different things. I mean, why is that not a normal thing for banks to be doing? I think it has a lot to do with how competitive that space is. Because how do, you, how do you decide or who decides which card becomes the default card on your Apple Pay wallet? Who makes that call? Does Apple make that call? Is it the bank issuing the card? Is it going to be Visa or Amex making the call? I mean, there are a lot of different players involved in a single credit card transaction. Um, and it is a very competitive space. I think it goes back to the financials. If, if I were like Chase or City or, or another card issuer, I would issue my card or at least, okay, so the sign-up process, let's talk about that really quick. So with the Apple, you know, card, you sign up with a couple pieces of information because they already know you. So let's just say that any bank could do that because they'll issue you, you know, 
an email or they'll send you something in the mail or whatever it is that they, they grab you on to, to say, Hey, you need this card. Then they will take you know, the information that they have in four or five different pieces of information. You sign up. But the, the, the thing that was so different about Apple card in terms of the mm-hmm. way that they provided it was that you immediately had a card number and you immediately were able to use it. And that's why I think when they asked you, Hey, do you want to make this your default for, for making payments within say the app store? that that was so easy and, and there's really nothing to stop an issuer from doing that. So I'm hoping that, that there'll be more com- competition with digital issuance. Oh, I think there will be for sure. I mean, Apple Pay has set the bar. Well, and, and that's what we like to see too, right? You know, is having some entity, if you will, that come into the space and help us rethink how we can approach things, just like what Apple did to cell phones, right? I still remember when they first came out with the phone, Nokia um, CEO was was joking on stage and saying, oh, well, you know, yeah, it's nice, it's wonderful, but, you know, they will remain a niche as they have always been. And look at what happened. Fast forward to 2019, Apple has over 40-something percent of the smartphone market share in the U.S. Um, So we like people stirring up trouble. Um, (laughs) Let's go back to to something that um, we all care about, at least on this show. Um, Rhetoric actually means um, when Arun started it, it's about stories with a purpose, right? So the purpose of things that's happening in the society. One of the promises of American dream is that if you're willing to work hard, you will be able to work your way up. Um, but if we look at headlines, right, the last year or, or extending beyond, and not just the US, actually around the world, is there is increasing income inequality. And it seems like it's much harder to make it than how it used to anymore. I think today I, I just read an article about how much money the top CEOs make compared to the people that are working in the companies. The ratio is as much as one to a thousand. You, you need to work a thousand years to make it to where the CEO is, which it's obviously crazy. Um, in that context, though, what more do you think financial services need to do to uplift those that we have left behind, right? We look at what and who banks serve. Um, and then we think about the ones that actually don't get the services that they need. What can we do more? How can we do better? How can we be better citizens of the world that we live in? Yeah, so I think this is a great question. And, you know, I, I'm an immigrant. I was born and raised in Haiti. My parents moved to the U.S. Um, in search of a better life and, you know, brighter future for my brother and for myself. And, you know, two two decades later, I I, I would say that I am living the American dream, right? I have a master's degree, international business. I've worked for several Fortune 500 companies. I own multiple homes. I started a family here. I've got my, you know, 2.1 kids, the house with the picket fans and all that. Um, but yes, it is a fact outside of my little suburban bubble in Atlanta, income inequality does still exist. Um, and from my perspective, an even bigger issue that nobody's talking about is 
some of the some of our minority communities learning how to truly build wealth, which is something I'm personally working on as well. But I think a lot of this has to do with trade and globalization, which is playing a really big part in it. You know, the increase in trade and offshoring to, you know, cheaper parts of the world to outsource manufacturing and back office processes and customer service. It's really impacting labor force participation and our wages here in the U.S. and it's something that nobody's talking about. Um, as it relates to, you know, income inequality, again, several reasons and variables there, right? It's what zip code do you live in? that defines the level of education that you have access to, right? Your gender, your race, academic pedigree, um, your parents' connections. Um, but the good news is that, you know, there are a number of programs out there that are helping to bridge the gap. Um, one of them is En-ROADS, for example, which is the organization that helped me land my internship at Western Union when I was only 17 years old right out of high school. Um, there's another one called Europe here in Atlanta that provides internships for college students as well to help place them in Fortune 500 companies, start earning money earlier, position them for full-time roles when they graduate. Um, so I think that these types of programs are providing training, access, internships, scholarships to students um, and underprivileged areas are a great way to start to address this um, this earning gap very early on. And I think that, you know, many more financial services organizations, organizations should invest and sponsor these types of programs to keep them, you know, keep them going. Financial education is another major area of opportunity too. You know, start learning how to manage your money, stay out of debt, set up an IRA, take advantage of your employer's 401k, um, and your employees start purchasing. Like a lot of kids don't know that stuff. Like when I graduated school, I didn't know I could do that. Nobody told me. Um, so financial education is a big one. And and you know I'll tell you know Pfizer for a second. Earlier this year at Pfizer Forum, which is our annual client conference in Vegas, we launched our final literacy financial literacy program where we donated um, financial literacy books to kids in underprivileged areas throughout Nevada. And during the conference, we had all attendees had the opportunity to handwrite a piece of financial advice to the kids, to the kids that were receiving the books. So, like, for example, mine basically was pay off your credit card every month, <laughs> which is something I had to learn early on um, the hard way, like a piece of financial advice I wanted to pass on to the kid who was receiving my book. So these are some of the things that I think, um, you know, in the financial services, fintech, payments, community that we should be doing a lot more of to help uplift these kids. We seem to be involved in a number of organizations that are starting to get people um, opportunities earlier and sort of broadening the opportunities um, for more people, especially for women uh, in this space. Can you talk about those a little bit? Yeah, sure. Um, yeah, it, a lot of these topics are near near and dear to my heart. Um, you know, at the moment, you know, pay pay equality, diversity and inclusion, leadership, and fintech are really a high priority for me. I have a five year old daughter, and I I want her to grow up in a world where she believes that she really can be whatever she wants, and that she can reach the highest level of leadership, whether it's in government, in corporate, and entertainment, or if she wants to own her own business. I've been in this industry for 19 years, 
Um, and I am consistently the only woman in the room or the only person of color in the room. I want this to change. I need it to change. I need it to change for my daughter. Um, I have big career aspirations for myself, but it's, it's so hard to, to become what you can't see. Like it feels unreachable sometimes that I'll ever reach the highest levels of a, you know, over Fortune 500 company. So these are some of the things that keep me up at night. Uh, as a result, I, you know, I'm currently on the board of two organizations. One of them is WNET, Women's Network and Electronic Transactions, and Women Driving Innovation, which is locally here in Atlanta. Um, and, you know, these two groups are really making a huge impact in terms of providing women with opportunities to build their personal brand in the industry through thought leadership opportunities, networking opportunities with senior industry leaders, uh, continuing education, professional development, many of the panel speaking opportunities that I've had in the last year and a half have been through participating in these types of organizations that have helped me build my brand in the industry. Uh, so now that I'm, I have the leadership capabilities to bring that back um, to other women in my community here in FinTech, that's what I've really been focused on. So, you know, when I'm not traveling or meeting with clients or spending time with my husband and my two little ones, um, I spend my time with WNET and Women Driving Innovation in Atlanta. Um, and I really hope that more leaders in the industry will consider doing the same thing to help you know, bring, bring these numbers up in leadership. I, I love that. I, I follow you on um, social media and uh, I see that you're always busy. You and, and a few others, um, Cheryl, for example, always busy promoting more opportunities for, for different voices. Right. And also my partner in crime here, Brad, he, he believes in that. I, mm -hmm. I wish there are more people and I, I wish that there are more gentlemen that will that will step up and i wish that there will be more men that will step up not because of the fact that they have a daughter that they realize the world is so imbalanced but more so because they truly do believe that this is good for for all of us right for the entire society um yeah absolutely yeah because there, there was something that melinda gates wrote in her book that still resonates with me she said if you lift women and children up you lift the entire society up and it is very very true um and i wish we don't have to wait another 200 something years to see that um but keeping fingers crossed and keep doing the good work you're doing it's impressive um so looking forward um what are some of the things that we wanted to know will have the most impact on what you care about the most? Something, you know, that inspires you, something that um, pushes you forward and, and keep you going. You talked about um, your five-year-old daughter and, and I have a seven-year-old too. So a lot of things that I do think about creating a society that, you know, will give her more chances to be successful, right? Um, how do we get more of those thoughts? into things that we do and, and what are some of the other things that impact what you're doing? So with that wonderful and inspirational note, thank you so much for joining us today, Stephanie. It's uh, wonderful to finally have a chance to talk to you and hopefully we'll get to meet face-to-face -face soon. Thank, thank you so much, dear and, and, and Brad. This was a great conversation. Really enjoyed it. I look forward to doing this again. 
And I will not forget beignets and coffee in New Orleans next year. There we go. See you there, Stephanie. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you, guys.